Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley & Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley & Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. This episode features a conversation with Chris DeGeneiro. Chris is a litigation senior counsel in Foley's New York office. And this conversation is particularly exciting to me because it's a crossover episode of the show the first ever crossover episode of The Path and the Practice, and that Chris is a fellow podcast host. He also hosts a podcast for Foley and Lardner. But before we get into that, I have Chris reflect on growing up in Bluebell, Pennsylvania, attending Colgate University for undergrad, and earning his JD from Fordham University School of Law. He takes us through his path, which is one that included a few years as an assistant district attorney and a year clerking for a judge. Before entering private practice, and before subsequently joining Foley and Lardner. Of course, I get Chris to discuss life as a litigator, and in particular, we talk quite a bit about developing trial skills. One thing you will learn throughout the course of this episode is that Chris is a trial junkie, and he comes to it naturally. In fact, he was exposed to trials before he was even born. I won't say more about that now. You will have to listen to the story. But this interest and passion for trial was the basis for Chris launching a new podcast at Foley called On Trial in which he features the stories of Foley's most accomplished litigators. So we talk about that. And we also talk about Chris's commitment and efforts as the office liaison in New York for Foley's racial justice and equity practice group. And in particular, the work that he has done connecting Foley to an organization called Black Connect. We then wrap up the conversation with Chris giving some wonderful advice on the importance of staying true to yourself. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Chris DeGeneiro. Chris, welcome to the podcast. I'm going to have you start like I have everyone start, which is, can you please give me your professional introduction? Sure. Thanks so much for having me, Alexis. My name is Christy Gennaro. I'm a senior counsel at Foley and Lardner in the firm's New York office, and I am a general commercial litigator. And also, I'm just going to spoil this for the listeners right away. This is a crossover episode in that you've launched a podcast at Foley, and we're going to talk about it. So you're also a fellow podcast host. I know you're early on in your journey, but this is my first time interviewing someone, <laughs> or I'll say having a conversation with someone who also posts a Foley podcast. We'll talk about that. And as usual for the path and the practice, you've just talked about how you're a general commercial litigator. I'm not going to ask you about that for a solid, I don't know, 20 minutes or so. Let's start at the beginning. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? Sounds good. I'm from just outside Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, town called Bluebell. Um, I went to a very small all-boys private school there, uh, and after I went to Colgate for undergrad and Fordham Law School for law school, and significantly for me, um, both of my parents were lawyers when I was a kid, and both of them were trial lawyers. Wow. So you've given me my roadmap. There's no way I can just skirt past all of that. We now have to unpack it a little bit. And I actually, I want to start with Bluebell, Pennsylvania. What's Bluebell like? What's childhood like for little Chris growing up? That's a good question. One that I haven't given much thought to. Bluebell is a small town in Montgomery County, 
Pennsylvania, just north and west of the city of Philadelphia. And I think it's your sort of typical suburban town, maybe five to 10,000 people, homes that look a lot alike in clusters, neighborhoods. Yeah. And what were you into? If I found you, say, late elementary school, middle school, what, what type of kid were you if you had to describe yourself? In those days, I was probably outside playing some sport with friends from the neighborhood or school. And I was a big sports fan, big Philly sports fan. Hard not to be growing up in that area. I appreciate that. And I have to confess, this is the question where I always secretly wish that someone confesses some really odd or unique hobby, you know, something like- I've got nothing. It's boring, Alexis. (laughs) But it's okay. It's okay. We'll keep it moving. But take me to high school. You mentioned where you went to college, but tell me a little bit the process, the decision-making behind that. And also if there were any high school sports or part-time jobs or just anything else to highlight that period in your life. So I went to a school called Chestnut Hill Academy. Again, really small, all-boys private school. There were 48 kids in my graduating class. That's very small, yeah. And there was a, there was an all-girls school across the street, Springside, a school where my sister went. And in high school, believe it or not, I was very active in mock trial. I'm almost no. embarrassed to say it. But no, you know, as early as ninth grade, I mean, that's what I spent a lot of time doing. And and our school in particular was really competitive and competed in the Philadelphia citywide competitions annually. And so that was that was a big part of my life from ninth grade on. And of course, I was active in sports and other activities at the school. The school was a college preparatory school. And so it was really designed to get kids into college, right? It required that, that kids participate in a certain number of activities and play a sport every season. It was one of those kinds of places. Do you realize that in over 80 episodes of this show, you're the first person who's mentioned doing mock trial? <laughs> Which like what are the chance like what are the chances? I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I'll I'll take it. I think this makes a lot of sense given what we're gonna later share about the podcast that you've launched. So I think this is wonderful. You also mentioned having parents that were lawyers, or I think you even said trial that's lawyers. Right. Can you tell me a little bit about them? So both of my parents were prosecutors. They started their careers as prosecutors, at least. My mother was the chief of sex crimes in the Montgomery County DA's office. I think my dad was also in the sex crimes unit. My dad went on to have a private practice and and then even went on to be an in-house lawyer. And he is now a deputy GC for a company outside of Philadelphia. My mom, who passed away about 10 years ago or so, she worked in the prosecutor's office for years and then left the DA's office and continued to be a public servant. She worked as a solicitor for the county, I think in the Office of Children and Youth. But, and I don't want to get ahead of you here, but my, you know, it was almost a foregone conclusion that I would be in the law. And famously, my mother was trying a rape murder when she was nine months pregnant with me. And I think she was delivering her closing argument. At least that makes the story so much better. When the judge asked her to step up to sidebar and said to her, you know, Miss Coletta, the jurors are totally distracted by the baby in your womb, obviously kicking through your dress. Can we take a short recess? Oh my goodness. <laughs> and so, you know, and here we are now, 33 years later. Wow. I did not expect you. To, I don't know. I thought you were going to say, and then she went into labor or something like that, but I did <laughs> not expect that. So you were an active participant That's right. um, in trials, even in utero, which is, I think, really interesting credential. <laughs> 
When you say it was a foregone conclusion, I mean, there's this level, I mean, part of it is osmosis from what your parents do, but was there any urging on their side or was it you would hear, like, would, would you hear much about their day to day? I see you nodding. So say more. For sure. Yeah. I mean, on sick days from school, I went to court, you know, and wow. I sat in the back row and watched my mom. You know, usually it wasn't a trial, something like a hearing or an argument, but I was just hooked. I mean, watching the presence that she had and the way that she delivered arguments, I just wanted to do that. You know, in the same way that, that you grow up a sports fan. I mean, I, I grew up mm-hmm. like a fan of advocacy. Yes. Well, and you were watching the arena. You were watching. That's right. That's, that's, that's amazing. And so I'm sitting here with this level of like admiration, also just kind of surprised how far back it goes for you, the interest in being a trial lawyer. But also I'm a little bit jealous of all the context you had when you went to law school, because many of us, when you hit evidence, it's so incredibly theoretical that, and you'd seen, you'd been in court, you actually knew what was going on. And we'll talk about that in a moment, but let me know. Okay. I appreciate you sharing that. That's really interesting insight. So then what's your thought process for college? You know, I'm going to law school. How do you pick a college? You know, I went to this really small private school and I did well in that environment, right? I didn't, for example, go to a huge public school where I was around hundreds or thousands of kids. And so I wanted to sort of identify a college that would provide a similar experience at the college level. And Colgate was the perfect place for that. And, you know, I was going to study philosophy or political science. It was never a question. I wasn't going to do anything with science or math. I had no interest in those fields whatsoever. So a liberal arts college made perfect sense. And that's how I ended up at Colgate. It's funny. I just, I laughed a little to myself as you said, I was going to study philosophy or political science because that's what I did. And I was also someone who knew, like I knew I'd be going to law school. I did not have that level of exposure. My mother went to law school, but she never practiced. But I will joke that she raised me as a little litigator. <laughs> and those are your choices where you're like, I'm just going to, I guess I'll study philosophy, poli sci, because that, that's, that's pre-law. That's about as pre-law as you can get. By the way, yeah, there's no pre-law major or concentration at Colgate. But by the way, my wife is a lawyer and she was an accounting major. And I think she was so much better prepared for the practice of law at a large law firm where she worked for years. So I will tell my children, if they want to be lawyers, to pick something more interesting than, say, philosophy or political science. Hey, hey, we learned how to think. That's what right. are you talking about? <laughs> we, if you want to talk about Hobbes or Descartes or Immanuel Kant, like I can do that with you. Yeah, we can. If you want, <laughs> we can think about thinking together while while she can exactly. crunch numbers that you know we'd actually encounter as right. As well, she can actually right. read whatever you know balance sheet or ledger is at issue at, in the lawsuit and know what's going on. Un- understood. So I think that's actually a really good point. So for the, I was actually just talking to an intern at Foley who's in high school. And I said, you need to listen to this podcast. So if he listens, I said it was full of advice. If you aren't in law school or aren't in college yet, you don't have to be pre-law to go to law school. Who knew? I didn't, it never occurred to me. (laughs) Exactly. And often that'll give you insight into things that are really helpful. Okay. So you know where you're going, you know, know what you're doing. I'm assuming you did get that bachelor's in poli-sci or philosophy. philosophy. That's right. There you go. I've said this on the show before, but I know not everyone listens to every episode. So I'll say it again. I've had people make fun of me a little bit over the years for also being philosophy undergrad. 
And one person joked, oh, Alexis, I hear the philosophy factories aren't really hiring that well these days. They're not. <laughs> so, yeah, they're not. It's super It's super hard to get a good philosophy factory job. Um, so you go to law school. So for you, now what? Law school. So I went to, you know, I wanted to go to law school in New York City, which is how I ended up at Fordham. And I only sort of knew about trial lawyering. You know, my dad had gone in-house by the time I reached law school, and my, my mother had actually just passed away. But my only exposure to the law was going in court. So I didn't really know about the work lawyers did otherwise. The idea of being a corporate lawyer, I had no idea what that meant. Of practicing at a large law firm where you're not in court every day, also didn't have any idea what that was. Transactional, that is not a thing, right? Never heard of it. Right. Yes. But I knew I wanted to be a trial lawyer And, you know, my dad said, and a litigator, because I knew what litigation was. And he said, look, if you want to be a good litigator, you need to learn how to be a trial lawyer first. He was like, go to the DA's office. You will get experience there that most folks in large law firms don't get for at least 10 years or may never get if they're litigators. And so I wanted to go to a DA's office, preferably in New York City. And so that's what I did. I mean, I went through the motions of law school like anyone else. Wait, and slow down for one moment. How did you pick Fordham specifically? Well, you know, truth be told, I wanted to go to Columbia or NYU, right? Mm -hmm. Or Fordham. I mean, those were the three schools that I had identified. And Fordham was the one of those three that I got into with some money from the school. And so that's how I ended up at Fordham. Yeah. I just think it's important to explore those practicalities that decisions get made based on, well, where one you got in to where money is being given. Because I don't know, I just think there's people who are probably listening to this in their own process and sort of like, if I don't go to the number one place, yeah. my life is ruined. It's like, no, it's not. It's not. You'll you'll learn wherever you go. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I knew, for example, that it was important. I, I still believe this to be the case. You could you know, disagree, but to go to school in the place where you plan to practice with a few exceptions, right? There are some law schools where it doesn't matter. You can end up working in New York City at an elite law firm. But the advice that I got was, if you want to work in New York City, go to school in New York City. That's right. Well, and I have to also go back to something else you said, which, because I won't remember it later on. You said a couple words. You said corporate, you said trial lawyer, you said litigator. And once again, maybe this is obvious to all the law students and pre-law, whomever you are listening, the word corporate lawyer, I feel like gets thrown around a lot. And we actually use it in a different way within the large law firm than I think people do outside of. So I've been interviewed before, Alexis, what was it like being a corporate lawyer? And they'll use it as a proxy for big giant firm doing representing big clients. And I'm like, well, I wasn't a corporate lawyer. I was a litigator. And so I just wanted to pause on that to explain sometimes people use it to mean big firm, what we use it to mean is often a transactional lawyer. And it's just something that I've noticed that we can have different language. And then also trial lawyer versus litigator. I used to think they were sort of one and the same, but maybe you can expand on this, Chris. You can be a litigator who very rarely goes to trial. That's right. Yeah. And and I, and by the way, I think that most litigators in large law firms are not often going to trial. The nature of the cases we litigate, there's so much at stake. They are so expensive to litigate for our clients. The parties generally settle at some point along the way before, if it's not otherwise dismissed, settle along the way before the case is tried. 
So being a trial lawyer is kind of like having a particular focus as a litigator, yes. right? It's a it's a yes. special set of skills that you don't develop just by being a litigator. I mean, some of the yep. skills you do, taking depositions, yeah. defending depositions, but some of them you have to be in court to really develop. And more broadly, litigator means I do litigation and that may or may not frequently lead to me being in court. I will tell you, I was a litigator, Chris. <laughs> I cannot tell you I was a trial lawyer because <laughs> sure, I'd had a number of standing up in court experiences, but I couldn't be like, yeah, my 72 trials. No, right, right. I don't think I ever personally really had any real trial. You know, I did a lot of like mock trials and things yeah. like that. And I think that dichotomy is important because as we describe, you know, what you've gone on to do professionally, I'm sure we're going to touch on it more, but briefly take me to law school. You started in law school. What was that experience like for you? Was the adjustment hard? Was it easy? What do you remember? You know, I found the adjustment to be incredibly difficult. It was interesting because I wanted to, I so badly wanted to be in New York City for law school. But of course, I was used to a place like Colgate, which was sort of a totally self-sufficient community. And I came to Fordham Law School and it was in my view and experience, like a day job for folks that were just in New York City. There wasn't this sort of close-knit community that I was accustomed to. And most of my friends from Colgate were in New York City anyway. So I found it to be difficult to balance being in New York City, which was so exciting at the time and the place that I wanted to be, while also balancing being a good law student dedicated to you know studying and, and doing well. So I, I found the adjustment to be difficult. So you have the adjustment of you picked up, you're in this new place. It doesn't feel the same because people kind of spread out all over after class. Academically, was it challenging or was it what you expected? So I didn't really have expectations, which was maybe a problem. <laughs> I was a philosophy major, right? So I got away with good, bad, or otherwise, writing my papers at the 11th hour and doing a very good job and doing well. You can't do that in law school. And so, yeah, the adjustment of of staying with it academically throughout the entire semester and doing the work on a daily basis um, was challenging. Yep. I have to ask every guest that question because we see you now, you're senior counsel, you are a trial lawyer. And I think it's important for people to hear that there are definitely times you're like, I am still very much figuring this out, even as somebody who knows what they want to do. So I think you already touched on it to some extent, um, that advice from your dad about go where you can get that trial experience. So walk walk me through that process of finding your first job out of law school. And I think you also clerked, but so, so did, talk yeah. about all talk about all that. Sure. So, you know, while all of my friends were interviewing at big law firms to land jobs where they would get paid a lot of money. I was going to the various boroughs in New York City interviewing for jobs as an ADA. And I knew and that's assistant district Ass assistant attorney. district attorney. That's right. Yep. I definitely was excited about it and knew that it was going to be the right thing for me and for what I wanted to accomplish ultimately on my career. But I definitely remember, you know, thinking, man, it would be nice to be interviewing, you know, on the forty fifth floor somewhere on Park Ave. But anyway, so that's what I did. And and the first offer that I got was from the Bronx District Attorney's Office, and so I took it and went there. So tell me, and this, I almost want you to take me back to like a remedial level of what it means to be a district attorney and what it means to be in a particular office, because 
candidly, and clearly I would never make this mistake, but I think people can get things confused between like a federal prosecutor, sure, sure. a state prosecutor, and what it even means to be a prosecutor. So what is the job? What were you hired to do? Right. So a district attorney's office is a state prosecutor, and they enforce the law in the same way that the FBI brings cases to the U.S. attorney's offices throughout the country. Police departments bring cases to district attorney's offices. And it is up to the district attorney's office to decide whether to prosecute a particular case, which the police bring, and then what charges to include. So, and by the way, just to talk a bit about the interview process, because interviewing at DA's offices is challenging and exciting in itself. It is not an interview where you go in and tell them all about your background and why you're excited to be an ADA. You interview with panels of prosecutors and they throw evidentiary hypotheticals at you. And so if you've taken criminal procedure, you are responding to hypothetical crimes or scenarios with how you would respond if you were an ADA, what you would charge, whether there's an ethical issue there that, that ought to be run to ground, and so on. So that, that was a really sort of exciting process in and of itself. Did you prep, have to prep for oh, that? Yes. Okay, because part of me is like, that's exciting. The other part of me, that makes me really nervous and is a little bit night marish at this. Yeah, I, th I think I did prep. I think, you know, I sort of went back over evidence and criminal procedure. And I say that as someone, I really liked criminal procedure and I liked a lot of like the constitutional based classes, but that also sounds like some sort of like exam, exam nightmare. Very much so. And by the way, I mean, I, they might ask you something like, should marijuana be legalized? And they just want to know because a really important part about being a prosecutor is exercising prosecutorial discretion, right? So it's not the case, at least it wasn't my experience, that every time the police arrest someone, an ADA is going to prosecute it fully and completely, you know, all the way to trial or a plea on the top count. That is hardly the case. In fact, routinely, we would decide not to prosecute cases that we didn't think were so serious or adjudicate them in some other way with like, in New York, we have something called an adjournment and contemplation of dismissal, an ACD, where we adjourn the case for six months. And if you don't get in trouble again, it just gets dismissed. Mm -hmm. And depending on the level of crime in a particular locality, you know, you might get that for something not as basic as like simple possession of marijuana, maybe something a bit more serious. But in, in any event, discretion is so important as a prosecutor, including because the courts are so jam-packed and you're handling so many cases. Yeah. So you do, you make it through the interviews, you do get the role. What's the first type of work? Like, yeah, what are you focused on when you first start there after law school? I was assigned to the criminal court division, which at the time handled all misdemeanor cases. And so ultimately, I think you were there for a couple of years. And my understanding is when people are prosecutors, you sort of work your way up in terms of what you're exposed to. So I don't know if there's any other highlights of your time there before we move on to the next part of your journey. Yeah. So for a year, I did, you know, sort of garden variety misdemeanor cases and took a few of them to trial. And then I became a felony assistant. And that is when things really get exciting because in order to indict a case in New York, you have to present it uh, to a grand jury and get a vote of grand jurors to indict the case. So we were in the, in the grand jury panels all the time presenting cases. And I was in that role for about a year, tried a couple of cases during that second year as well. And then after two years of being an ADA in the Bronx, I had had enough as a criminal prosecutor 
It was a difficult job. It was a great job, but, but I didn't want to be a criminal prosecutor forever. I sort of got the trial experience, cut my teeth, got lots of grand jury presentation experience and said, okay, now I want to transition into commercial litigation. So that's what you did. Well, and I will just pause because I said this earlier when you were talking about your parents having been prosecutors, and I said that thing about context. And I realize at this point, you're a licensed attorney, you're a JD, but to graduate, to really be applying and using, say, the federal rules of evidence and a bunch of other, you know, criminal procedure, all sorts of things. I know that's something I struggled with early on as a litigator because I hadn't seen things play out and I would really have to rely on that partner, which, you know, is certainly a part of the job is that mentoring and being taught by those more senior than you. But it's really interesting when you're like, no, I'm going in front of a jury now. I need to be really clear on what's in, what's out. And so I I just, I find that really interesting and wonderful that you got that sort of immediate like exposure to really seeing how things work. That's right. It was, it was really great. And it taught me and helped me refine judgment. I was handling, as a misdemeanor assistant, you're handling 200 cases at any given time, right? You may not, a defense attorney may call you and say, I'd like to talk about this case. And you have no idea what he's ta- he or she is talking about. You have to you know, look it up on your own spreadsheet and then say, aha, this is that case. When you're a felony assistant, you're handling fewer cases, which are more significant. But still, I mean, there's, there's not someone sort of overseeing every move you make throughout the course of a case. And so it taught me to distinguish important facts from less important facts or things that I, sh- that I should really be focusing on from things that are ancillary. And so it was, it was great in that regard. You know, it's funny, I am not at all trying to convince everyone that they should be a prosecutor. So if that comes across in this, that's not my intention, but I know a number of prosecutors and I do think there's a level of, what's the word? I don't, I keep saying the word context, but I think when you do make that transition from prosecuting crimes to moving to commercial litigation, the sort of, you're you're used to managing a lot of cases, you're used to things being fast paced, you're used to potentially like the like the ramifications are very different than when we're now representing large corporations. Obviously we take that very seriously, but I just, there's like a, there's like an energetic difference <laughs> between someone who's been a prosecutor. I mean, I'd say it's even comes down to demeanor and it's hard for me to put my finger on, but I don't know. I just thought I would riff on that. So you do make the transition. How do you do like, you know, generally where do you go? How do you find moving so I had the benefit of my wife's experience. She was a year older than me. We met at Fordham Law School and got married and she worked at another, she worked at a large law firm in the city and she had clerked. So she had gone to the law firm out of, out of law school, worked there for two or three years and then clerked in the Southern District of New York and just had a, an unbelievable experience. Loved it. Loved every second of it. Almost didn't want to go back to the law firm after. And through her experience, I decided this would just be such a great opportunity to pivot. And so I was applying and had interviews with a number of federal judges in New York and New Jersey, but I couldn't quite land a clerkship coming directly from the DA's office. Uh, You know, others have done it. It didn't work out for me. So I decided to go to another firm for a year. And as soon as I went there, I was able to, to get a clerkship. I think just a judge knowing that I wouldn't show up to the first day of the clerkship and not have read the rules of civil procedure since law school was comforting. <laughs> so sorry that that really makes me laugh because it's 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 true. Um, but that makes me laugh. So you you know you start the new role. You quickly thereafter line up. I'm going to go clerk. You go clerk. Are there general takeaways? I guess from either experience. Actually, I, let me let me break that up. Let me actually act like we're in deposition and I'll break that up. (laughs) How was it transitioning to civil? 
cases, just in general, moving to the firm? Yeah. So I thought, you know, it was a completely different experience. Being a prosecutor is a job that you do from your feet. You're in court all day. You're negotiating with defense attorneys. You're talking to police officers and detectives. You're not often writing and researching the law. I mean, the issues, every case is different, of course, but the issues are different flavors of the same thing across all your criminal cases. So moving into commercial litigation was was a totally different environment. It was a research and writing focused practice. And it was something, you know, that, that I didn't do a whole lot of during the two years that I worked as a prosecutor, but I loved it. It was it was this thing that I loved from law school. I had a pension for it. I wanted to be a federal law clerk, so it, it was great. It was a different different practice altogether. Fortunately, I did get to try a couple cases at this firm while I was oh, there. Wow. Civil cases in, in state court, which which was great. And that's that's by no means a given. I mean, you don't at that point. You're about two years out, and to get to do that is wonderful. It also sounds like it is not only making you read the federal rules of civil procedure, but you're sort of easing into more so what you would do as a clerk. That's it's different, but yeah, I mean that's exactly right. <laughs> Writing and arguing discovery disputes before you know federal judges. I mean, it, you know, I I jumped into commercial litigation with both feet. And it was it was an excellent year. And, and I, I really loved it there. And I loved the firm. It was a small sort of boutique firm in New York City made up mostly of other Fordham Law grads. And, and it was a great spot. And I was almost sad to leave, but I really wanted to get the clerkship experience. So you go clerk. What is that like? So that was probably the most difficult transition for me because this was in the Eastern District of New York in Central Islip. And, you know, so the Eastern District of New York, most people think it's Brooklyn. In fact, it's Brooklyn, and then there's a courthouse in Central Islip. Similarly, with the Southern District of New York, there is the Manhattan Courthouse and then the White Plains Courthouse. The Central Islip Courthouse was especially busy and still is. Judges have, at any given time, 500 or more cases, and they are, I don't want to generalize, but there is something called the six-month list where it is the way that the government tracks essentially the efficiency of federal judges. And there are two times per year when judges have to report basically the status of their dockets. And so if a motion has been pending for more than six months, by that reporting deadline, it should be off their docket or it should be on its way to being off their docket. So there were these two major time crunches over the course of a year where clerks are you know, scrambling to help move motions and cases along. And it was an intense amount of of writing and researching. It's interesting to me, though, because I feel like these experiences are you're honing the the, what I think are the major skill sets of a trial lawyer in the sense of first couple years on my feet, another couple years, all the writing and research that I would imagine has resulted in you being relatively well-rounded. We can discuss that as well. I would like to think so. (laughs) (laughs) That's my impression. But I see, and I'm, of course, whenever I do these shows, I usually follow along the person's journey on their LinkedIn. So I see you were a clerk for a little over a year. And then we were lucky enough to get you to join Foley and Lardner. Can you speak a bit about how you got connected with Foley and how it is you wound up working for the firm? Yeah. 
finding a job after clerking is is probably not so different than navigating OCI as a law student on campus interviewing. You have talked about it on, on other podcasts, but you're trying to find one from a group of many law firms that you're interested in and, and they're hopefully interested in you. Again, I had the benefit of my wife's experience and my law school friends' experiences. And so I did not want to go to a churn and burn mega firm in New York or anywhere else for that matter. I wanted to go to a firm that would provide me with the best experience I could get as quickly as possible around other sort of like-minded people that I liked and got along with. And Foley struck me as, as the perfect place, particularly in our New York office. It's not huge. It's a group of close-knit litigators in particular. There are some, some non-litigation lawyers here, but mostly litigators who are general practitioners and who, who get along well and are great people. And it's not the kind of place where associates and younger lawyers are only worth how many hours they bill a year. The place considers and appreciates that you're a person. And those were the primary reasons that I, I just absolutely honed in on Foley and knew that I wanted to be here. Well, that's wonderful. I didn't even have to send you the script to say that. That was, that was perfect. Good job, Chris. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I feel that I, now I'm obligated to highlight that I had Ann Seckel, who is the office managing partner of New York on the podcast not too long ago. So if anyone in particular, if anyone listening really wants to hear more about the New York office, listen to that. It's episode 81. So you joined Foley's New York office. I think for you, that's around two and a half years ago. What does your day-to-day practice look like now? Now, I am, and then too, but I was trying to, I was thinking you were going to ask me what did it look like then, and I was going to tell you it looked like a remote. Oh, that's right, Uh, because you started. I started January 2020. Yes, we almost started it fully at the same time. That's right. I forgot about that. So I started like a month, weeks, weeks before you did. I think that's right. So, So I start. I do maybe six weeks at the firm, and then my first child is born. So I take a leave just for two weeks, I think. I just took two weeks off, and I came back, and maybe the second day back, you know, everything shut down. Um, So I had six weeks of working in person with my colleagues and then was in the remote environment for, you know, about 18 months or so. Yes. And you navigated at this point, your second child. So you have an, a newborn and how old was your oldest? No, this, this is point? my first child. So. Oh, sorry. This was, you talked about getting married before. Yeah, Got yeah, it. Yeah. But you're navigating life with a new baby at a new law firm during a global pandemic. Yeah. No big deal, okay. right? No, it's, it's fine. <laughs> it's, it worked it's out. Fine. You know, the, the baby, the now two and a half year old, she, she made it. She's doing great. And things are great at Foley. And my practice is, you know, general commercial litigation. So any and every kind of business dispute that a company, sometimes an individual, might encounter. Full gamut. Because I see you when I read your bio, I see that, you know, general litigator. But I know you also maybe do some labor and employment. Yeah, that's right. As well. I generally have one employment matter at any given time, yeah. which is usually a discrimination case or something like it. Those cases are a nice change of pace from you know big companies fighting over contracts. The facts are usually uh, more interesting. The characters are more interesting. There's usually a salacious element. The attorneys against whom we're litigating are not your garden variety, you know, large law firm 
commercial litigators. It's, it's, you know, it's a nice change of pace, which is why it's a little bit different. that's right. It's a little different. Let me push a little bit as you explain your practice. I want to ask that question that I think the law students ask. Usually it's during OCI. They ask the lawyer, so what's your practice? You tell them. And as the law student, you're like, great. So what do you do? Like, what are you doing in your office? <laughs> like over these next couple days? Like, so what, type of work if we if we drill down a little bit more are your days filled with so for example today and tom- well tomorrow's saturday today and and at some point over the weekend and next week i will be working on a summary judgment motion for our client in a merger and acquisition related lawsuit and so that means drafting the statement of facts which can be, you know, 40 or 50 pages or even longer in connection with a a motion for summary judgment. And then that means drafting the legal arguments and the memo of law. And so a lot of reading and writing over the next, Mm -hmm. you know, two weeks or so in connection with this case. You still do get to do trial work at Foley. And this is where, let's see how this segue goes, because I've teased that you've launched a podcast at the firm. Yes. We're not going to dig really deep into Life's a Litigator, because it turns out you're the host of a podcast that people can listen to. And if if listeners could, I can see Chris, I don't capture video for the, for the podcast, but behind him, he even has what I'm going to call the cover art for his podcast, which is called on trial. So tell me about this. What is your podcast? Why did you launch it? And why is it important to you? I think I've covered that I love trials during this podcast today and how I got exposed to it and that I'm interested in it. I'll just take it a step further and say that I am a really competitive person and being a professional athlete was never in the cards, unfortunately. But I view being a trial lawyer as sort of an analogous role. I'm compete trial lawyers compete and litigators do this too, compete with the end goal of winning for their client. I mean, there's nothing quite like it other than sport that I can think of. And so that is one of the other reasons that I just love trials so much. And so um, with that in mind, I decided to start a podcast called On Trial to shed light on and talk about the most interesting and important elements of trying cases with folks from Foley. Because while most of our you know, complex, high-stakes commercial litigations don't go to trial, some of them do. And we've got great trial lawyers here. And in addition to talking about the important elements of trial and what makes a great trial lawyer, I wanted to talk with great trial lawyers here about their experiences, you know, their views on how to effectively put on a case at trial, how to be a good trial lawyer, and of course, get them to talk about their own war stories because every trial lawyer loves to talk about their own trial stories and experiences, and they can talk about them for a long time. So there's plenty of content here. I just... One episode is up at the time that we're talking. I know another one will be up shortly. So probably by the time listeners hear this, there'll be at least two. And if you're listening well into the future, there'll probably be many more. It's just really kind of gratifying and full circle for me though, because I remember when we chatted, I mean, I don't even know when it was, if it was six months ago. Probably. And you you mentioned, I'm thinking of starting a podcast. We talked a little bit about it. And then a couple of weeks ago, you were able to send me the first episode. Very full circle. I also like law firms embracing podcasting as as a medium. I think a lot of firms are, but I do think whether it be this podcast or the one you've launched is a little bit different. It's not join us for the latest update in terms of, you know, XYZ regulation out of, and we do that too. Law firms do that too. We need to do that. But I I love the storytelling happening. It just makes me really 
really excited. So I hope listeners check that out. And I'll just make sure to plug it in the future to keep cross-selling the show. You know, we got to do what we got to do. But I also want to talk to you a little bit as we start to wind down, Chris, about your work as the New York, I think, liaison for the Racial Justice and Equity Practice Group, as well as specifically the work that you've done and the firm's done for Black Connect. Sure. And so I'm not quite sure where to start. So I'll just see where you want to kind of dive in and talk about either of those things. Sure. After the murder of George Floyd, the firm in our office in particular, and you've covered this with other folks, wanted to do something impactful to respond to the Black Lives Matter movement. And the firm, I think, did a great job in starting the Racial Justice and Equity Practice Group. I don't know too many firms that have a pro bono practice group, especially a pro bono practice group focused on things like racial justice. And by the way, I do have to say before someone corrects me, it is no longer just pro bono anymore because there have been paid matters coming through the practice group. So yes, but it definitely, the genesis is- Okay, start this started as a pro bono group. practice, okay. Yeah. And at the time I wanted to be involved and a few of my colleagues in New York and I put our heads together and thought about how we could sort of affect change in a positive way. And we thought maybe the best way to do this is to try to provide pro bono legal services to black owned businesses as a way to try to help eliminate or at least decrease the racial wealth gap in this country, which is significant. And so I found this great organization called Black Connect, which was focusing on precisely that issue. It's a national nonprofit membership-based organization dedicated to eliminating the racial wealth gap facing black Americans. And among other things, they connect Black business owners with finance folks, banks, law firms, people who can provide them with the tools they need to get their business up and running and moving in a a positive direction. And so uh, we partnered with Black Connect as a pro bono legal service provider. And since that time, which this is about a year and a half ago, we've had folks from, you know, between five and 10 of our offices across the country doing lots of different work for Black Connect members. And it could be any and everything from, you know, helping a new business decide whether to form as an LLC, an S-Corp, or, you know, some other uh, business entity, how to pay their employees. Do they want to have independent contractors? Do they want to actually employ them, providing them counseling in that regard? You know, when do you pay overtime, how much, et cetera. Um, Also, things like intellectual property protection for um, startup companies, including like apparel and brand type companies that would need that sort of thing. So we've been able to do really good work for Black Connect members across the country. uh, And lawyers in our firm have been really active. And, And it's a plug it's a you know, it's a credit to Foley because when Black Connect launched, I think we were one of the first large law firm partners that they had. And now, if you go to their their website, they have many many law firm partners, which is great. But um, it was an initiative that we that we got going on right away, and which the firm bought into, and, and firm lawyers bought into right away. Which is wonderful, and thank you so much for all of your efforts in facilitating that. You know, now at this point over the years, I want to say, because we're probably closing in on around two years of working with them. I remember catching one of the racial justice and equity practice group meetings. I believe we even had someone from Black Connect come and present. And I think at that time, Foley had contributed the highest number of hours 
to them. That's right. She did say that. Yeah, which is really amazing. And then I also do, for anyone else who wants to hear a little bit more about that that practice group, episode 35 of the show features Byron McLean, who is the chair of the Racial Justice and Equity Practice Group, and we spend a couple minutes talking about it as well. Um, so Chris, as we do start to wind down, two last substantive questions for you. The first is, is there anything you've wanted to talk about that you haven't gotten a chance to touch on? And then after that is, What's your advice to that person, either early in their their career or to that law student? So my advice is to just be yourself and don't try to do something that you think you ought to do or you think you should be doing based on, for example, being you know in law school at a particular law school or in a particular place. You know, for example, I, I did something kind of unconventional. I went to the DA's office. And I remember feeling a little bit sort of insecure about that as my friends went on to do other things. And, you know, I just kind of put my head down and was like, this is the right thing for me. And it, it turned out to be right. And I think lots of people who show up at law school who don't really know what they want to do sort of get pushed in a particular direction. And before they know it, they're, you know, five years into whatever they're doing. They're like, uh-oh, which is fine. But I think be yourself and, and try to do what, what will ultimately make you happy and align with your particular goals. That is really great advice. And I can't help but tease that out a little bit. If you have no idea what you want to do, you're going to have to pick something. But often you do have some inkling of what lights you up, what you're passionate about, what you're curious about. But looking at others can cause you to question those intuitions. And what I hear you saying is you don't need to do that. You should you, you should stick with what most interests you or what you, and that's, and that's what you I did. think that's right. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. And, and more like, you know, I think it's likely that if, and when you decide to pivot away from that thing, you know, you will have picked up some incredible experience and skills that you'll be able to leverage in whatever it is you go on to do next. And Chris, I would say your journey exemplifies that very thing. That is a perfect note to end on. Um, I'll just thank you so much for, for your time and for being on the, sh- on the show today. Thanks so much, Alexis. Oh, and final, final question is, if people have questions or comments for you, can they feel free to find you on Foley's website and send you an email? They can, absolutely. Thanks, Chris. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice. 